Between the ages of four to the second grade, you are excused in the AIDS club. Well, let me add my greetings to Kurt and Lalia. We are so thankful that you guys are here with us. We are so thankful for the ministry you do. It is so important, and it's so rich for us to hear what God is doing throughout the world. So just know from my heart that we are so glad you guys are here. We're thankful for your ministry, and I'm really excited to hear all your stories. Also wanted to, uh, Vic Lucan is in the back, who had the chance. I lost him. There we go. I saw you come in, sir. Thank you so much for filling our pulpit for a long time. You had a great ministry, and we're still profoundly impacted by what you did. So I wanted to thank you for being here as well. Just while we're at it, there are a couple of babies, I think, here. Noah Edward, is this Noah's first Sunday? No? All right. Well, I saw him. I heard the squeaks. We had, we had a little baby Carlson back there. Is this, is this his first Sunday? No. We got, I'm way off. The point is we've got babies, and we're having lots of them, and that's awesome. Well, this morning I live in tension. Before me, I have a complex passage that Lenny wants me to explain. And yet I live in the tension because there's a bucket of tomatoes in the back that Sue Kimley said she'd throw at me if I ran even a second over my time. So I live in tension this morning. So we need to dig in quickly. We have been walking through Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. We've talked about it. We're going to go through it in 13 small weeks. We're looking at little snippets. There's lots of ways to study a book of the Bible. We're going to look at a a big 10,000-foot overview. We're calling our series Rooted in the Gospel. What does it mean for us to root ourselves in the gospel, to root ourselves in our identity in Jesus Christ, to understand what his death and what his resurrection means in our lives, and to live with the power that he has for us? It's our series, Being Rooted in the Gospel, We started in chapter 1, being rooted in the gospel that Paul wanted us to know that we are called, that before the beginning of time that he has chosen us, so we could never think we would mess up so much that God could not accept us, that God wants us, desired us before we could ever mess up, before we could ever do anything great, and that even in the midst of that in our lives, he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for us, that our, our mistakes would be covered by his blood, and that we'd be sealed by the Holy Spirit. He continues to pray that we'd understand the knowledge, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so we'd know the hope that we have in Jesus, the glorious inheritance that we are to him, and the power that we have to live by, which is the Holy Spirit. Paul wants us to to grow in the knowledge of these things, to grow in the understanding of them. And then he walks us into chapter 2. And he gives us these two great taproots of the gospel. First and primarily that we understand that we are sinners. And we understand the depravity and the wickedness of our sin. See, churches don't often talk about that. We don't get in grip with the reality that our sin is despicable to a holy God. And as wrong as our sin is to God, overwhelmingly was there a provision of grace in Jesus Christ. It's only when we understand we've been forgiven much that we could ever love much. It's the heart of the gospel. We'll see that worked out in Paul's theology this morning, that we'd own the depravity of our sin, but more than that, we'd own the grace 
that overcomes it lavishly. And then last week, they would know that we are not alone, that we were born into a body, that we were born into one body, that the Christian life was not intended to be walked alone. It's impossible. You were given into the body of Christ. And there's some uniquenesses in the body. We'll get into that again this morning. That he presents this great mystery that God desired, desired to reconcile Jews and Gentiles in his church. And ultimately that means if we walk away from the cultural paradigm of then, we walk into the 21st century, for us that's an understanding that there's nobody in the church who's a second class citizen. There's nobody here that God likes more and there's nobody here that God likes less. That becomes extraordinarily significant because in that culture, in the context, Gentile people coming into a church would have felt like total outsiders. They would have felt like they didn't belong. They walked into a crowd of people who hated them. And it's so easy sometimes for unbelievers to walk amongst Christians and feel that way. And yet the challenge for us as the church is to be the body that expresses God's love. So that in the church, God is doing an incredibly reckless, I'm trying to use a word that doesn't exist, reclatory, reconciliatory event to reconcile us together for the purpose of the gospel. So that the world sees the church, he goes, wow, there's a bunch of people in there who shouldn't get along otherwise. But in Jesus, something's happening there. And that's what he desires to do to the church. And then when we come into chapter 3, And we're in a hurry. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on the behalf of you Gentiles. Paul starts another thought. For this reason, I. Because of everything he said. He's wanting you to get the sense that everything's building on something. For this reason. Because God has reconciled Jew and Gentile in this unique way so that the church would be a unique reflection to this world. For this reason, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. We come to that and we immediately want to make it this great, oh, he's a prisoner for Jesus. Well, actually here, literally, he's a prisoner. And he's wanting you to understand he's a prisoner, but he's a prisoner for Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. These are actually literal statements. Paul is writing this under house arrest in Rome. And why was Paul arrested? Predominantly because he'd grown his ministry to reach Gentiles and it caused massive Jewish uprisings, which forced the Romans to handle him. So Paul finds himself in jail. Now a fascinating thing about Paul is when Paul finds himself in jail, he doesn't begin to weep and wail and say, oh no, I'm in jail. Paul says cool stuff like, sweet, I'm in jail. There's more people to talk about Jesus to. How would we have reached the gospel into the jail unless I had come here? This is amazing. And you start to see Paul really taking every aspect, every opportunity, every little part of his life as seeing it as an opportunity for the gospel. And he continues in verse 2. Now, an interesting thing in chapter 3, I've told you a couple of times, Paul writes these extraordinarily long sentences that would drive our high school English teachers nuts. Here comes one. Verses 2 through 13 is a sentence. So you're kind of left with this idea in in verse 1 that he starts off with an idea. He's about to say something and then kind of backtracks a little bit to want to talk a little bit more about Jesus reconciling the Gentiles. 
So in verse 2, he says, trying to encapsulate that thought, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. I want to assume by believing that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, there are a couple places here we're going to camp out. This is going to be one. Because there's some nuances in this text that don't translate well into our culture, but this will be one that does. Paul assumes that they've heard of the stewardship of God's grace. And just for a moment, I want you to consider yourself. Do you consider yourself a steward of God's grace? Because when God called you unto salvation, when he called you and made you his, in Ephesians 1.13 it says, if, when you heard the word of truth and you believed, when you became a believer, God stewarded you with his grace. The question is, what are you doing with the stewardship of his grace? Now we're walking through a passage and we're looking at indicatives. There's no great, you should do this here. But at the same time, we need to be challenged by Paul's example. Paul said, have you heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you? Has it occurred to you that God's grace given to you was not given to you merely for you? But it was given to you so that you might be a displayer of God's redemptive grace to the world. That's exactly what Paul is putting out to these people. You've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. God desires to take all of us and to redeem us, and to reconcile us to himself, that we might be little pictures to the world of God's forgiving power. So that the world might see a better, a brighter, and a bigger picture of Jesus Christ. So that someone could ask, man, that guy goes to church. You know what's wrong with that guy? There's so many, God, could, could God redeem that guy? Yes. Yes, he can. This is the incredible picture of baptism, by the way. When you choose baptism, it's the opportunity for you. That's why baptisms historically have always been outside. It's the opportunity for people on the outside to see somebody that they've seen their whole lives and go, man, that guy's crazy. What? He's with a church? What? They're putting him in water? Why? So that when you come out of the water and they start to go, that's why he's different. It's Jesus. Huh. And that's always been the purpose of baptism. So that people would see a difference in us and associate it with Jesus. So that our lives would be on display for the world. That we would steward God's grace that was given to us for them. He continues in this mystery verse 3, 4, and 5, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, and as has now been revealed to his holy apostles by the Spirit. We're going to kind of work our way through this quickly. Verse 6, he says, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, 
members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And last week we acknowledged that if we were living in the first centile, first century, and you were a Gentile believer, that this passage would be probably the richest and the thickest and the most meaningful thing you read in the book. It would so shake your heart because you would start to recognize that this group of people who had castigated you, had mistreated you, had left you on the outside, that God did not see you that way anymore. But that God loved you and he was making you one and that you were a fellow heir, that you were a brother and a sister in the same way that God was putting his family together that you'd be the members of the same body, the partakers of the promise. This is the mystery that Paul's talking about. Now the challenge for us is we don't live in that kind of tension. So when we read this, we don't feel that, this is amazing. God values me the way the Gentiles in the first century would have. And yet the hope for you is still in this passage. That God is reconciling sinners to himself. And that you could walk into a room fresh, having just received Jesus, and know that God values you the same, with the same intensity and the same love, as he does the oldest, most godly person in this room. That that's how he sees us. He doesn't have a varsity team and a JV team. He doesn't have a class A and a class B. He's in the process of building us up into his body. Paul received this revelation from God and became a huge part of his ministry. He clarifies this. And in verse 7, and we're going to camp out in this last part a little bit, of this gospel, this gospel that, that God reconciles sinners to himself and that God holds manifest the bringing together of people, Jews and Gentiles, for his glory based on the death and resurrection of Jesus, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Now just for a second, I want you to put your finger on the word minister in your Bible. Is it capitalized? No. Is there anybody's name after it? No. The interesting thing about that is is when we come to a passage like this and we read of this gospel, I was made a minister, we are going to naturally assume that this is an exclusive thing for Paul, that Paul was made a, a minister, that like the church got together and they ordained him, and this is an official capacity, an official role that he now fills. But that's not actually what this text says. It says, of this gospel, I was made a minister. This word in Greek is actually a deacon. I was made a servant. I was made a servant of people, is what he's trying to put forward to you. I was made a servant of people according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. So let's play with this for just a second. I'm going to ask you a couple of fun, tricky questions, which I'm having fun asking lately. Has God called you to be a servant? Get your hands up. This is, this is a legit poll. Good. Have you been shown God's grace? Interesting. 
Has he given you power? This is phenomenal. You guys are acing this stuff. When Paul says of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power, he's not talking about being a professional pastor. He's talking about being a servant, of which you are all in that group. Every last one of you. See, the mistake that got, started getting made in the 20th century is we started making the church a pastor's movement and not a people's movement. When there's somebody on our street that has a great deep need, we go, ooh, we should call the pastor. No, you shouldn't. You should go talk to him. We've missed the fact that the church was always a people's movement. It's not built on ministers and professionals. We'll get to there in Ephesians 4. My job, according to Ephesians 4, is to prepare you to do the works of ministry. Not to sit in my office and wait for you to call me so I can do the ministry on your street. It's to prepare you to do the works. This is a people's movement. It always has been. We could look at Paul and see an example. And then you'd later know that Paul invested in Timothy and left him in a church to lead it for a while. Was Timothy a professional? He invested in Titus, left Titus to lead a church. Was Titus a professional? Titus set up lots of churches and put elders irresponsible for all of those churches and oversaw a number of them. Were all of those elders professionals? Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. If we took a poll, a number of you, I could sucker into voting that Luke was a disciple. Luke wasn't a disciple. He wasn't. Luke had a job. Luke was a normal guy. Luke was a doctor. And in fact, Luke continued to be a doctor after he knew Jesus. Fascinating thing about Luke, Luke wrote nearly a third of the New Testament. See, when we want to talk about authors in the New Testament, we always think about Paul. Paul wrote the most books. Luke by far wrote the most words. And why did Luke do it? All you have to do is open up your book. Open up the Bible and look at Luke 1.3. And you find that he starts writing this book. It seems to me also having followed all these things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke, a doctor, starts doing ministry. Cares enough about this one guy, Theophilus, to write an entire gospel aimed at him. Now that's impressive. That's carrying out the gospel. That's loving a brother that you would sit down and pen an entire account of what Jesus did so that this one guy would understand. And then the interesting thing is, having written the whole book so that Theophilus would understand what Jesus Christ did at the cross and the significance, you might be left with the question, well, what happens next? Well, Luke didn't leave Theophilus hanging, did he? He comes around in Acts 1-1 and he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus, Jesus began to do and teach. He writes him a second book. He writes Theophilus, the book of Acts, so they could see what the impact that Jesus would have. So it wasn't just that Jesus began to do these great works. Oh, Jesus, good for Jesus. 
is that the church took on the mission. They took on the purpose. And the church began to radically transform the world. Now, friends, I need you to hear this. It wasn't the backs of professionals that did that. It's awesome that in our midst we have missionaries and we have another pastor. And I guarantee you, they tell you, that it's not us. It's not the four of us that have been called to engage the world. It's not the four of us who've been called into your neighborhoods and workplaces. It's not the four of us that God's trying to put on display for the whole world to see God's redemptive grace in our lives. It's all of us. It's all of us. So in verse 8, when Paul says to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, and we could take a poll. We would probably think Paul was the greatest of all the saints. But that's not how he walked. To me, though I'm the least, the very least of all the saints, the, this grace was given to me to reach, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And what I want you to see wholeheartedly in verse 8 is that this verse is the gospel well-rooted, lived out. Verse 8 is the gospel, well-rooted, lived out. Because in verse 8, you find this reality that Paul was in touch with the depravity of his sin. I'm the very least of all this people. And yet Paul was incredibly in touch with the grace that overwhelmingly covered his sin to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of God. The unsearchable riches. The no ending. The overwhelming nature of God's grace in Christ. This is the the gospel well-rooted, lived out. It's interesting and 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says this, the saying is, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. See, this wasn't a one-time incident for Paul. Paul didn't sit down and say, you know, I should make these guys think really good of me. I'm going to fake some humility here and be like, mm, I'm, very, I'm very humble. But you actually find this to be a rich part of Paul's theology. So much so that he will regularly say to you throughout his writings, consider others better than yourself. Huh. And actually that mirrors Jesus. Because you find in Philippians 2 that we should have the very heart and nature of Jesus, who being the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but humbled himself and made himself nothing. Making himself obedient to to death, even death on a cross. That if Jesus would humble himself so thoroughly from being the very essence and nature of God, to humble himself, not only to walk amongst us, but to die on our behalf, and to die on a cross on our behalf, You see Jesus humbling himself 
so low to serve us. And you see Paul humbling himself. I'm the very least of these. Do you understand what this testifies to the nature of the gospel? See, if you walk into a room of people and you own this, and I'm the very least of all these people, aside from God's grace. I don't want you to ever say that, by the way. But just to walk into a room and say, I'm the very least of all these people. How can I be the greatest servant in this room? You want to change your workplace? Become the greatest servant. Start being the guy that fills up the copier every time. Nobody likes filling up the copier. Nobody. Some poor person always has to do it. Why not you? Heck, if you're the boss and you fill up the copier every day, somebody's going to start going, why does he fill up the copier every day? He's the boss. Start doing the menial things around your office to love and serve people. Why? Because you're going to exalt them over yourselves. Why? Because they're going to start to see you differently. See, this is the gospel, well-rooted, lived out. This reality that I'm the very least of all the saints. And this grace was given to me to preach the Gentiles, those that don't know God, the unsearchable riches of Christ. That Paul dedicated his whole life to that. That he wanted to go places and tell people how awesome God was. That if we track this through this book of Ephesians, Christians can never be seen as prideful. Christians can never be seen as haughty. When somebody looks at a Christian, they look at us. And I say, man, that guy carries himself so low. He serves us so well. His faith must be true. That's so countercultural. It doesn't make sense. I wonder if he goes to church. You start to see the gospel lived out in really real and tangible ways here. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He gives you the purpose that Paul was rooted in sharing the gospel to preaching to people whose life was bankrupt, the absolute wealth of Jesus, and to reveal to people what God had revealed to him, what God had shown him, the truth that God had put before him, and that so, that through the church, God's wisdom would be revealed on earth and in heaven, so that they'd be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That through the church, God really wants the angels to see his wisdom. Do I understand that? No. But somehow and somehow, God's trying that the church would testify to the angels, 
to those in the heavenly beings, his wisdom in saving people and building a unified body of people who don't get along, but through Jesus are connected in a real and a tangible way that we would serve one another and preach grace. This was according to the eternal purposes that was realized in Christ, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, that this was God's plan all along. And Paul digresses again in 13 to say, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul writing from a prison says, don't feel bad for me that I'm in jail. I'm in jail because I love Jesus. I'm in jail because I preach Jesus. And while I'm in jail, I'm going to preach Jesus. Don't feel bad about that. I'm fulfilling what God has for me. In any situation, in any circumstances, I know the secret of being content. That's what Paul's professing to them. He's living it out before them. As we've walked through this book of Ephesians, our desire in our heart has been to root you in the gospel, to know what the Father declares true about you, to understand the indicative, the case where God says something that's true about you, and that you would accept it as truth, that you would live it as truth, that the nature of the gospel is not do more and try harder. The nature of the gospel is understand what Jesus Christ did for you on your behalf, and live that you would know that these are true, that you were called, that you've been forgiven, that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, that, that in increasing ways God is desiring to enlighten you so you'd come to a greater understanding of the hope, a greater understanding of your value, and a greater understanding of the power that you have to live, that you'd come to a greater understanding of the deadness and the depravity of your sin, and you'd come to a greater understanding of the abundant provision of his grace that overwhelmingly covers your shortcomings. And that you were called into one body. And here in chapter 3, as Paul puts this out, he's rooting them in purpose. So that they would all understand why they were shown grace. That we weren't called together to have a big, happy, holy huddle. So we weren't called together just to have fun potlucks so we could snub our nose at the world. But so that we would understand purposefully that we were saved to show the world his redemptive grace in our lives. That's why Paul says, I can boast of my weaknesses because it will show God's redemptive grace all the more and more and more. So their lives would not be about people thinking we're great. Our lives would be lived so that people would think God was great. In 1 Timothy 1.15, to come back to it, it says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. Friends, this is the gospel well-rooted. This is the gospel well-rooted and lived out, that we would live with a purpose to understand that our sin has separated us and God's grace has brought us near and is more than sufficient for the need we have. 
Let me pray for us. Father, as we walk through this book, we see over and over and over what has been done for us in Christ Jesus. That the heart of this is not do more, try harder. That we don't have to prove our worth to you. We don't have to esteem value based on what we're able to accomplish. That who we are was established at the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That there's no event that could ever happen to us that should define us other than the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Father, that we would be a people who are so thoroughly rooted in the gospel to understand on a daily basis how much we need you and how much we need your grace, that we could walk and live amongst people as the least of them, living on the provision of your abundant grace. God, we are so thankful for your son, Jesus, that in him we find life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.